All right, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll continue with our series on the greatest sermon ever preached. It's not the one you're going to hear today. It's the one I'm going to talk about, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, I'll read verses 33 through 37. We're talking about the law internalized and the matter of oath-taking. May I say before we even read the, the text today, Jesus in this sermon, especially in this body of the sermon, startled his hearers. He had a knack for doing that. He startled especially the scribes and the Pharisees. They were sticklers for the law, but Jesus stuck them with the law, with its true spiritual meaning. They were exposed. They were convicted. Every sermon has a text. Christ's sermon, the first one recorded, probably the first one he preached, is no different. The text is verse 20, so we'll look, read it first. For I say unto you, Jesus is talking, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the rest of what he says in this sermon is an exposition on the text. And so we're in the body of the sermon. It's got six points. Don't get nervous. I don't have six points in my message today. But we're coming to the fourth point of the body of his sermon, the manner of taking of oaths, of swearing. I hope you'll approach this subject with an open mind. We all, and I say that not just to be editorial about it, we all need this message. Verse 33, again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I, Jesus is talking, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair black or white. Verse 37, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, yes, yes, no, no. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. It would be easy to dismiss these verses or minimize them because they're so controversial. From the earliest centuries, they've been variously interpreted. Augustine, the famous, respected 4th century church father, spoke for many in his day, and even some since then, I'm sure, when he said that Jesus forbids those for perfect Christians, but permits them within limits for weaker ones. That's what he actually said. I don't know about you, but I want to dig to find out what my Savior really meant and mandated here. Just because it's controversial, I don't want to say it's not important. Maybe if our hearts are surrendered, you think the Holy Spirit just might teach us. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, Jesus said. He shall know of my teaching. In the verses that immediately precede the passage I read, 
As we talked about this two weeks ago, Jesus stressed purity of heart. He said, if a man looks upon a woman with lust, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. So the look of lust is equivalent to adultery. It's mental adultery. Likewise, he went on to say, talking about purity, that trying to find a loophole in our marriage vows is wrong. It exposes our impure motives. So in the foregoing verses, the immediately preceding verses, the issue is purity of heart. But here the issue is truthfulness. David cried out in his penitential psalm, Psalm 51, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. He was talking to God. God hates lying of any kind. In Proverbs 12, verse 12, God lists six things that he hates. The second one listed is a lying tongue. That reminds us of something that we read two weeks ago that God hates from the book of Malachi as we're talking about this matter of purity in marriage, morality. God hates putting away. God hates divorce. Oh, how we need to get back to loving what God loves and hating what He hates. Did you know you don't love what God tells you to love any more than you hate what He hates? How many of you say, I I love to be in good health? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I think that's about everybody. You know, you don't love good health any more than you hate germs. Let's face it, we don't love truth any more than we hate lies. And truth is a scarce commodity in our day. We all have a credibility gap problem. The Bible says that sinful man goes astray from the womb speaking lies. We don't like to talk that way about our precious little innocent babies. I never wanted to say that about any of my nine grandchildren. A couple of my children, when they got to a certain age, but no, no, no. (laughs) I'm just joking. They go astray from the womb speaking lies. They don't have to talk to lie. I had a pastor in college that I worked with for a couple of years, and I remember him saying, he said it with his own southern drawl, I can't imitate that. He'd say, that's not a halo, them are horns, honey, talking about babies manifesting their sinful nature. Our default setting is not to tell the truth. That's our default setting. We need to admit that. Or if you turn me off right now and say, this is not my problem, so I'll check my texts, I'll do something else, you're going to miss something God really wants you to hear. Will you humble yourself this morning to hear the Word of God? If we are going to be truth-tellers like Jesus mandates here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to have to undergo some behavior modification, some course correction. Before we go any further, let's define what an oath is. This is all talking about oaths. Jesus is talking about oaths. Well, what is an oath? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who was martyred by Hitler in the closing days of World War II, gave the best definition I've been able to find. He said, an oath is the public calling of God or for God to be a witness 
for a statement made about something past, present, or future. Let me read that again. An oath is the public calling for God to be a witness for a statement made about something past, present, or future. In our minds, we often confuse it with expletives. It doesn't necessarily mean profanity or expletives. The presence of oaths in our society proves the existence of lies. If human beings could not lie, there would be no need for oaths. I want you to see this morning three very important observations that form a natural outline of these verses. Again, you can be relieved, not six points like Jesus' message, just three this morning. First of all, the Pharisees' perversion. Oh, how the Pharisees loved to twist God's Word, and as Jesus said in another place, make it of none effect by their vain tradition. And Jesus calls their bluff here. Notice verse 33, again, ye have heard, that's the familiar pattern of these six points in his message, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, that word means perjure, thou shalt not perjure thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. What is Jesus dealing with here? Before we go any further, we must understand he is not dealing with what Moses said. He is dealing with what the Pharisees perverted, Moses is saying. He's dealing with legalistic perversion. Did you know the exact words of verse 33 are not found anywhere in the Old Testament? Check me out. See if that's the case. But the Pharisees derived them from two known scriptures and put their own assumptions into them. Jot these scriptures down, or maybe you can turn to them quickly enough to read it. Deuteronomy 6.13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him and shalt swear by His name. That's the first one that the Pharisees derived their perversion from. Deuteronomy 6.13. The second is Leviticus 19 verse 12. The Bible says, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Now, the Pharisees would take off from these two verses and inferred this. Listen carefully because you're going to need your brains today. They inferred that you can take all kinds of oaths, and as long as you did not commit perjury, you were not guilty before the law. Now, let's be careful to understand what perjury means. We hear the word a lot. Perjury is willfully telling an untruth in court after having taken an oath of affirmation. The Pharisees said, as long as you don't commit perjury, you are not guilty before the law. This has exposed their false dichotomy, first of all. And this is what legalists always do. We have a fuzzy idea of what legalism is and who legalists are. But one thing that helps to define a legalist, make it easier to identify them in our minds, is they are always selective about what rules are binding and important and which ones are not. They're very selective. They end up straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, as Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing. Their duplicity, their hypocrisy was glaring. So in this matter, the Pharisees said, if you swear by Yahweh, if you swear by Jehovah, you better keep your vow. But if you swear by the temple or by heaven and earth or by Jerusalem or even by your own head and you break it, 
no big deal. You see their hypocrisy. And they made, all, they made all these kinds of frivolous and arbitrary oaths. They did this constantly. They had imported this kind of reasoning into the seventh commandment, which we talked about two weeks ago. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what Jesus was dealing with in the foregoing verses. And Jesus called them out for it. They ignored the spirit of the law and just emphasized the letter. Their attitude toward the look of lust proved that their hearts were not set on purity at all. Their eagerness to find a loophole in the marriage vows and allow for divorce showed that they didn't understand the sanctity of marriage and God's purpose for permitting divorce. Likewise, their attitude toward the taking of oaths exposed that their hearts weren't really set on truthfulness. Before we throw brickbats and condemn the Pharisees, let's examine our own hearts to see if we have been infected by the culture about this in the same way. Many evangelicals have bought into the lie, this is an example, that same-sex attraction is not wrong as, one, as long as one remains celibate and doesn't act on it. There's a whole movement of that in our day. It's amazing how the, how the inroads in evangelicalism. I hope you realize that that's the same error as the Pharisees. They thought if I just abstain, if we just abstain from that which is outwardly and egregiously wrong and keep the letter of the law, God is satisfied with that. We don't have to worry about the spirit, the nature of our hearts. Such an attitude betrays ignorance of what God really wants. As you turn to, you're not very far from it, you're in chapter 5. We just turn to Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 13, where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their criticism of his eating with the publicans and sinners. And after saying in verse 12, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. In verse 13, he says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy, this is God talking, I will have mercy and not what? What's that next word, class? sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God delights not in outward animal sacrifices, not in rivers of blood, as the uh, prophet uh, said, the minor prophet, but He delights in obedience. And if we put our faith in God's mercy and forgiveness, we will naturally manifest a merciful attitude towards other sinners. Let's make, examine our hearts, make sure we're not guilty of what we condemn the Pharisees for. There's a divine regulation here against perjury. Why did God give a regulation against perjury by the taking of an oath? But He didn't specifically state other grounds for doing so. Follow me very closely here. This is where some people go astray and miss, miss the teaching of Jesus. It is not coincidental that these words immediately follow Jesus' words about divorce. It was never God's will for a couple to break their marriage vows till death do us part. 
But divorce was permitted by God through Moses to prevent things from getting out of hand, to bring some order out of chaos, to keep things from getting worse due to the hardness of men's hearts. Jesus' regulation about divorce put a bridle to some degree on a roving eye and the profligacy of immoral matters. In the same vein, God sanctioned the taking of an oath in a court setting to put a bridle on lying. Let's get down to the foundation, the heart of the matter. Should it ever be necessary to take an oath? No. Should man or woman always tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Yes. But Jesus was calling the bluff of the Pharisees here for the use of oaths for trivial and frivolous matters. And in their doing so, they were making the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not lie, they were making that of none effect when they or others failed to keep certain vows or gave false witness on matters other than perjury. So again, Let's be careful. Let's not give the Pharisees down the country until we've examined our own hearts. Maybe there's a Pharisee in all of us. We all have a credibility gap. None of us hate lying as much as God does. That's why he stresses it so much in the Bible. I mean, you look at all the times lying is mentioned even in, in the epistles, you wonder, haven't we got past that? Why, why, why does Paul keep bringing that up? I mean, you get into the book of Ephesians, it's one of the probably the favorite books of the Bible for many Christians and for good reason. In those first three chapters, I mean, Paul just lifts us up into the heavenlies where we are seated. He tells us God's gracious, eternal purposes for the church. He gives two wonderful prayers, the most spiritual prayers that Christians could pray outside of the Lord's Prayer itself. Ephesians is a favorite Bible study of many, many Christians. We feel like Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration as we read it. Lord, let's just park here for a while. This is good. And then Paul brings us crashing down to earth in the fourth chapter when he blurts out, wherefore, put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbor. Whoa, where did that come from? You know, God knows what we need. And that's why we're told, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. God knows that we all have a problem with truthfulness, and yet He desires, and yes, He demands, as we read in Psalm 51, verse 6, truth in the inward parts in our hearts. And if scrupulous honesty is in our hearts, it's going to come out our mouths. What did James say in chapter 3, verse 2 of his epistle where he talks about the tongue? You need not turn there, just listen. For in many things we offend all. That doesn't mean we offend everybody. It means that we all offend, okay? And then he says this, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. So, listen, if you 
can find me somebody who doesn't sin with their tongue, which would involve they don't ever tell an untruth, they don't ever exaggerate, they don't ever hide the truth, and you found a perfect man. So if we're not perfect, it's because we don't have a perfect tongue. John MacArthur is right on when he said, if just for one day everybody on earth told the truth, our entire system would collapse. It's all built on a framework of lies. He's right. May God help us not to think that we don't need this elementary teaching that we've gotten past it. There's a Pharisee in all of us. The Pharisee's perversion of it, but notice the Savior's prohibition. Verses 34 through 36, we encounter those now familiar words, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, Jesus said, swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by, or nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Though some of you try to do that with the gunk you put on it. Now what's Jesus saying here? First of all, before we go any further, we need to realize He is showing His Authority is the lawgiver, but I say unto you, who am I? I, the legislator, I, the lawgiver. Yes, at the very moment he said those words, he was a man standing among them there, sitting perhaps with, with a sermon on the mount, but yet he had the authority of God in what he spoke. Right off the bat, Christ telegraphs that he's not at odds with Moses, and this is what the Pharisees tried to get him to do all the time, or tried to frame all the time. Now, Moses said this in the law, but what do you say, Jesus? They tried to get him going at Moses. But now he says, I am the one who gave the law through Moses. We noted in a recent sermon that Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, proclaim Christ to be the king in Jeshurun. Jeshurun is a term of endearment for Israel. Moses didn't give the law, folks. The law was given through Moses, the Bible says. Christ gave the law. He was the king on Sinai. He gave a perfect law, a perfect standard of righteousness. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7 verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Nothing wrong, nothing inferior about the Ten Commandments. Jesus shows His authority here. And then He reasserted the Old Testament standard. After correcting the perversion of Jewish tradition, he now gives the real meaning of the law. That's, that's a good sequence and habit to follow, to, to, for us to follow, for me to follow. Correct the perversions of the truth and then give the truth. And so he gives two basic principles that govern the use of oaths here. I'll 
give them to you out up front, and then we'll talk about them individually. Two basic principles from the Old Testament. Number one, do not swear frivolously. Number two, swear only by the name of God. Do not swear frivolously, but swear only by the name of God. First of all, don't swear frivolously. There was a tendency among the Jews of Jesus' day, and especially the Pharisees, to take an oath about any trivial matter. Unfortunately, many of us still do the same today. When we're arguing with somebody, and they, especially if they accuse us falsely, we'll say, I swear I didn't do that. That's cheapening the whole purpose for an oath. It robs the solemnity of it. In Matthew chapter 23, and again, I won't have you turn there. I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time. Jesus really gets, gets hard on the Pharisees. He excoriates them for drawing a distinction between various oaths, this very matter. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you are blind fools. Woo. What if I use that language today? You're blind fools because you say that if you take an oath by the temple, it's not binding. But if you take an oath by the gold of the temple, that is binding. He went on to say, you say that if you take an oath by the altar, you don't have to keep it. But if you take an oath oath by the gift that is on the altar, that is binding. And then he asks this, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Why did Jesus say this? Was he being too hard in his denunciation? No, listen carefully. Again, if you don't follow me, you'll miss it. Men have a tendency, as the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 6, verse 16, to swear by the greater. Men swear by the greater. So what we consider to be the greater betrays our hearts. Don't swear frivolously. The second principle that Jesus reiterates is swear only by the name of God. As you look at this text again in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 36, what is the name conspicuously absent? It is the name of God. The things that are named are heaven, earth, Jerusalem, one's head. Jesus said, don't swear by those things which are common euphemisms for God. But he does not say, he does not say swear not by the name of God. Did you follow me? He does not say, swear not by the name of God. Now, what do we read in the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We are to hold God's name in reverence. What is His name? His name is His nature, His attributes, which could all be summed up under the adjective holy. So the first thing we are taught to pray is, hallowed, holy be thy name. We set God's name apart. Isn't it interesting? At least this is my experience. I've never heard a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim take the name of their God or Christ in vain. Oh, they may inadvertently use the name of the Christian God or Christ when they swear. I've never heard a Buddhist, Muslim, or Hindu take the name of their God in vain. 
So we are permitted to swear by God in some cases, as we'll see in a minute. But we dare not use His name frivolously. And I'm not here to make friends this morning. I want to tell you the truth. And I think if your heart is right, it'll, there'll be a rapport. But I cringe every time I hear a professing Christian say or write, OMG. Don't alarms go off in your mind? Or do we really think about what we're saying? But in this we all offend because if no man offends with his mouth, he's a righteous man. So I'm guilty too. God has convicted me about euphemisms and minced oaths over the years. Please don't think that I'm being nitpicky or judgmental of you when I say what I'm about to say. What is a minced oath? Well, the word mince means to lessen the force of, to weaken. So a minced oath is a form of swearing that replaces a direct swear word with a more acceptable and less offensive word, but in effect does the same thing. And all I ask of you is as I go through these common things we say, I just ask you to ask in your heart, do I really honor God by that? Do I really honor God's name? And I'll leave it with you. When we say gosh and golly, look at those words in a dictionary, you'll see that they're euphemisms for God. When we say G and G whiz and G's and other things like that, euphemisms for the name of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. When we use euphemisms for other curse words or expletives, like darn and heck and freaking, does that please God? You say, but Dave Ramsey does it all the time on his radio show. Uh, does that make it right? Let's remember we've all been guilty at times of the careless use of language. If we really understood what the Bible says about our speech, would we not be more circumspect? Let me just give you a few samples. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. There's going to be a solemn reckoning for that. Paul said in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let's choose another inspired writer, James. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? James 3, verses 10 and 11. My prayer for all of us is, the fruit of our lips will consist more consistently of praise to God and thanksgiving to His holy name. So we've seen the disciples, or we've seen the Pharisees' perversion, we've seen Jesus' prohibition, 
But let's look at finally at the disciples' practice. That is what Jesus laid down for them. He sums up the whole matter in verse 37. He gives the kingdom standard here for his disciples. This is what he expects of us, his 21st century disciples. Jesus' ethics and standards have not changed. Oh, how we need to say that again and again in the day in which we're living when the evangelical church is caving to the culture. So he says here in verse 37, but let your communication be yea, yea. That means yes, yes. Nay, nay, no, no. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Some translations render it the evil one. Now, how are we to understand Christ's words here? How can we reconcile this seeming absolute prohibition with those words by which he rebuked the Pharisees? What is he forbidden or forbidding? All right, let's talk about two things. He's, first of all, he's forbidding the use of oaths in ordinary conversation. Let your communication be yes, yes, no, no. The word in the Greek for communication, interesting enough, is the common word logos. It's used more than 50 times in the New Testament. In the vast majority of the times in which it's used, it literally means common speech. There are exceptions, certainly notably referencing Jesus himself in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the logos, the Word, and the Word was with God. He was the expression of God. But the vast majority of times the word logos is used, it means common speech. Notice that Jesus did not say and use the word testimony or witness here. He didn't say, let your testimony or your witness be yea, yea, and nay, nay. If he had said that, he would have used another Greek word if he'd meant that, which is the word martyria. But he didn't say, when you are called upon to bear witness to the truth in court or in a special context, just say yes, yes, and no, no. But he said, let your normal speech be yes, yes, and no, no. Your word is your bond. Anything more is of the evil one, the devil. And who's the devil? He's a liar, the father of lies. He plays fast and loose with truth. And then notice, please, the biblical precedent for swearing by God. There are some religious groups, like the Society of Friends, more commonly known as the Quakers, who refuse to take oaths even in court. And they base their conviction on that matter right here on Jesus' words. They interpret them in an absolute sense. Other groups, Prominent writers, even like the man I mentioned, who gave a definition of his for the, for the word oath, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the martyr, takes a similar position. The only problem with that view is that it fails to account for all the godly people, and in some cases, people inspired to write Scripture in the Bible, who go on record as swearing by God. Let's be honest with the evidence here. First of all, there's God Himself. In Hebrews 6, 16 through 18, it says that because God could swear by no greater to Abraham, He swore by Himself. In addition to His promise, He gave an oath that He would bless and multiply Abraham's seed. But someone might object and say, well, that was God, and He's perfect. But he can swear, but not us, not man. Okay, well, hear me out. We have some other instances there's Abraham's servant, 
We don't know for sure it was Eliezer. It probably was, but the Bible doesn't name him in Genesis chapter 24. But in going to get a bride for his master's son, Isaac, uh, uh, this servant, if it was Eliezer, he swore to his master, here's the wording, by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that he will not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Go a little bit further. And Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, swears to Joseph, his son. As an old man about to die in Egypt, he made sure that Joseph was not going to leave his bones in Egypt, but when God visited the, the, his, his children, his progenity, that they would take his bones up out of Egypt and bury them in Canaan, where, his, where Abraham was buried. Jacob swears. Joseph swears. David and Jonathan swear. He swore to Jonathan that he would show kindness to him and preserve his seed even after Jonathan's death. It was as if Jonathan had a premonition of his death. 1 Samuel 20, 17. Well, you might be saying at this point, well, that was Old Testament, but Jesus changes the standard here in the New Testament. That's why he introduces it with a contrasting thought. But I say unto you, okay, hold on. Take the Apostle Paul. He swears by God. Romans 9, 1. 2 Corinthians 1, 23. He calls God for a record, to be a witness. That for, he says, the, I, for this reason I came not unto you yet. Then there's Christ himself. When he was tried before Caiaphas, the high priest, who got very angry with him, he remained silent for a time. And then Caiaphas turned to him and said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And for the first time Jesus spoke and said, thou hast said, or you yourself said it. Jesus was expressing affirmation. He responded to an oath. So I just want us to get the the full picture here, folks. These and others in the Bible called God to witness a binding vow or an affirmation of fact Here it is, critically, in an important and serious matter, not in an ordinary or frivolous conversation. Well, let me wrap it up. Can we all just get back to telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Really, can you imagine what our society would be like if everyone told the truth? You already heard what John MacArthur said, the whole system would collapse. But can you imagine what it would be like? A lot of jobs would be eliminated. We wouldn't need many lawyers. Notary public's gone. IRS auditors, gone. Lie detector manufacturers, administrators, and analysts, no need for them. No need for agreements about contracts and promissory notes and collateral and child support and alimony. Can you imagine what it would be like if everybody told the truth? You know God demands transparency and truthfulness here and now. Yes, there will be no liars in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. But do we realize his watchful eye and listening ear right here and now? We teach our little children to sing, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. 
We go on to say, there's a father up above, and he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Are we careful? Maybe you're here today, and you're not sure you're saved. Something just, you don't have the assurance. You can't give a ringing affirmation. Yes, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that I'm a child of God. Could it be that you haven't come clean with God and acknowledge the truth about yourself that He already knows? That you are a sinner with nothing to commend about yourself to God. And the Bible says in Proverbs 28 verse 13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. What does the word confess mean? It means to say the same as, to say the same as God about your sin, to take God's side against your sin. And when you do that and claim his mercy in Christ, then he not only forgives you, but it gives gives you his righteousness. Maybe that's why you don't know you're saved. But may I say to Christians, I'm assuming the vast majority of those here today fall in that category. Let's be people of the truth. Let's keep our vows. Let's apologize for lies and half-truths. Let's quit exaggerating. Let's speak the truth every man with his neighbor. This isn't just what God recommends. This is what Jesus demands. Shall we pray? Oh God, you desire truth still in the inward parts. Help us to examine our hearts today in the light of Jesus' words, not in the light of the norm of men. What a vast difference. There are some today that haven't acknowledged the truth about themselves that your word declares. I pray that they will. But at the same time, Lord, they won't despair of your mercy but they'll claim it in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.